Hello, welcome to the Primal Nature Podcast. Today's interview is with Omar Pani, an author, teacher of BDSM or DS. He leads workshops and courses all around the world with a strong focus on helping men to find or develop their dominance and women their submissiveness. So I'm drawn to him because he's intelligent, he's eloquent on these subjects, but also mainly because his work elicits some some deeply mixed feelings in me, right? As as it does with many. He dives headfirst into many sensitive issues, and in this interview, we talk about dominance and submission, obviously, both in the bedroom and outside of it. Uh, we talk about the practices and controversies and principles at stake here. Just a few key phrases to, to give you a taste. Biology is non-negotiable. We are built to step in for each other. Trust the greater wisdom. It's all about consent. Know yourself and be effective. As Om says, our inquiry remains stunted until it is shared and joined with others who are inquiring just as we are. And there you have it. Let's dig in. All right, so Omar Pani, welcome. Happy to to have this opportunity. We spent a long time kind of bouncing emails back and forth. Yeah. Trying to have a conversation for a few months. Yeah, yeah, but no, I, I definitely appreciate it. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, and have a lot of respect for for the work you're doing. So, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, could you maybe start by just telling us kind of where you are in your in your journey with, uh, I mean, I guess with with sexuality is is really where we'd like to start. Oh. Uh- I mean, actually, the forefront of the work I am engaged in right now, sexuality seems to be the second tier for me at this moment. I'm very much interested in uh, guiding men into coming into their own. I think that's at the forefront of the work I'm doing. I have a, a intensive program for men called Creating the Dominant Man. Yeah. That part creates, uh, it covers men's sexuality. It certainly covers their relationship to women. But even more than that, it is a lot about men kind of really coming into their core, coming into their power, finding clarity. So that's the work I'm really passionate about. And certainly the erotic aspect is one part of it. And I teach BDSM classes. I just came back from Berlin where I taught with my uh, wonderful co-teacher and mentor, Lori Handlers. And uh, uh, we have a course called Tantra Meets BDSM, which is very much around sensuality, around BDSM, around Tantra, around hands-on practices. So it's very much a passion of mine to teach that work as well. But yeah. anyway, even more than that, I'm focused on kind of creating creating a dance for both men and women, for men who want to pursue kind of stepping into their more dominant archetype and women who actually are finding it more their pleasure to want to partner with those men, which I think many women do. And then if they do want to partner with men who are holding that kind of dominant energy, then how to play with those men better, how to partner with those men better. And then to really consciously and deliberately come into their submissive archetype as a woman. Hmm. So to me, this is very much a two-partner dance. It's not the only dance that's possible between men and women, but it is one that I know, one that I'm familiar with. So even in the sensual realm, sexual realm, it is my pleasure to kind of guide men and women into doing this particular dance together well for men to step into their dominance and for women to step into their submission and for both parties to really remove the stigma because both of these archetypes are very unpopular in our society these days. It's, it's very, very 
It's not very popular for men to say I'm a dominant man, and it's not very popular for women to say I'm a submissive woman. Yeah, definitely. Right? They're both very unpopular archetypes, and I think uh, that's that's kind of a problem in society, and it's an opportunity for me because I think there's a lot of possibility there. I think that a lot of the solutions people are looking for is actually kind of hidden in that dance. And there's a lot of shadow around it. So my work is around kind of helping people remove the shadow and actually really get what they want. If they feel this is the dance that's for them, if this is the kind of polarity that they have been seeking and longing for in their relationships. And I think many of them are, I think many of them are seeking it uh, without knowing it, or many of them are seeking it kind of in a sly way because they don't want to be overt about it. Right. I think women are very hungry for the dominant energy from men, but a lot of them don't want to say that. And they want to say even less that I want to be in my submissive towards that man, because it's culturally very unpopular right now. Yeah, definitely. So I feel kind of helping men and women come into that happy polarity with each, with each other is kind of my foremost passion right now. And even the BDSM part is a component of that. It's actually less. I'm, uh, of an investment for me. I don't actually care what people's sexual get off is. My course for uh, helping men come into their dominance is actually not about them coming into sexual dominance. You know what I mean? If, if, my, if one of my men says, I enjoy submission in the bedroom, I'm like, good for you. Good that you know that and let's help you get that. Because our sexuality is very complex. Our erotic templates are very complex. Yeah. So it's not my investment that the man be sexually dominant in the bedroom and the woman be sexually submissive. It's one of the myths. I think the dominance and submissive archetype between men and women are bigger and more global than that. Yeah. And then finding the happy place to play well with each other's eros is only like a one, one subset of that dance. Okay. Right. So it should not be understood as only, uh, only a dance in the bedroom or the dungeon yeah. where the men are sexually dominant and the women are sexually submissive, even though that is also the majority of the preference, but not universal. Yeah. that's out there so then what what does it mean to be a dominant man well you know i i describe it it's it's kind of a it's kind of a umbrella term what what a dominant man is to me it's a man man who is clear it is a man of character it is a man who understands how to behave and how to operate within the tribe of men it's the kind of man that other men would vouch for it's the kind of man that other men would want to be friends with. It's the man who is reliable. It's a man who has character. It is kind of all those things, all those, in a way, uh, virtues that have been considered male virtues for time immemorial. So to me, it's actually not even any new invention. It is more an acknowledgement that we know what masculine virtues are. We know what the template of the good man, the strong man, the virtuous man, the reliable man is, and let's investigate and rediscover it and embody it and not let our very confused culture right now tell us that all the past ideals and models of masculinity need to be tossed out because they're toxic or some other bullshit like that. So it is as much a reclaiming as anything else, right? I I tell my students once I take them through the template, of all that I'm offering is like, there's nothing new in this list, Yeah. right? Things like loyalty, things like character, things like being true to your word, things of be honest, be forthright. These are all virtues we have all known and cherished for eons in masculinity. 
right? And I think more than anything else, they need to be restated and clarified and reclaimed by men. Do, do you think that's specific to men? Like that can't, those couldn't be. I think it is. I think, just... I, yeah, I think it is. I think it would be incorrect to say that the masculine virtues, masculine virtues are virtues. And there is absolutely nothing wrong if a woman embodies those virtues. But I do believe men and women are different. And I do believe their primary virtues are different. Our strengths are different. Right. So at least for men, if you say on my list, uh, caring is not a masculine virtue. Does not mean I don't think men should be caring. Nurturing is not on my list of masculine virtues. Does not I does not mean I don't believe men are aren't nurturing or they should be shouldn't be nurturing, or that a man should be able to love his baby and hold his baby and change the diapers and nurture a child as superlatively as any woman. Hmm. That's not the point. I think. There's a, there's a lot of overlap and overlap of duties and overlap of virtues between men and women, right? We, we are built to step in for each other. So there isn't any kind of a complete dichotomy like, oh, that's men don't do that. Our women shouldn't do that. But having being said that, there, I believe there are men and women are different and our strengths are different. And saying we don't have differences and we don't have strengths that need to be emphasized, that need to be encouraged, that need to be nurtured, that's false and it creates a lot of confusion. And it creates weak men because they lose focus. They lose focus. They start focusing on things that should not be their primary focus. Right? It creates a lot of confusion in our things. And I think we are living in very confused times where we kind of thrown all the virtues up in the air and saying, well, all the virtues are for everybody. And, and some of the virtues are not even virtues. Stoicism is not a virtue. It's toxic. No, men need to be motherfucking stoic. They need to be tough. They need to, they need to know how to bottle down their feelings and function because life will be demanding enough that you need to be able to do that. And if you don't, you will get eaten. If you don't, you will be weak. You won't be able to take care of yourself and the ones you love if you don't have the capacity to do that. So to say stoicism is not a virtue is nonsense. It's bullshit. We would not have soldiers. We would not have the warrior class that is not capable of stoicism. It wouldn't work. Right. And men need, need those virtues. We need those archetypes as well. And men need that more than women, perhaps. Right. Men need the virtue of stoicism as much as perhaps women need to cultivate the, the virtue of being nurturers. Right. Also does not mean women can't be stoic and amazing and powerful and doesn't mean men can't be nurturers. There isn't a split or a dichotomy here, so, which people so, get in all in their heads about. They think, oh, you think men just should be this way and there should be no overlap. No, I'm actually looking at how we function best. And that's like on a biological basis or cultural or just, you know, looking at the people around I you? Think the real, I think the reasons are anchored very much in our, our strengths at the level of evolutionary biology. Nature has created two sex and for good reason, right? We are not identical. If we were identical, we would be superfluous. If we were identical, what would be the point of having two sexes, right? We do have yeah. different strengths. And that means when we come together, we cover more ground, yeah. right? If, if we can do it well. Yeah, if you do these five skills and I do these different five skills, when we come together, we have 10 skills at our disposals. Yeah. Right? That's a good thing. Right? So I very firmly believe men and women are stronger together than apart. 
right? I'm not any kind of a person who says uh, men should just not be with women or some nonsense like that. I think the best relationships are where two people are embodying different virtues and they're combining their strengths and they contribute to each other through their strengths and they can nurture each other through their strengths and they're more powerful together. They are juggernaut together because they have more resources. Yeah. They have more virtues. They have more strengths together. And, and so one of the ways that you, you have been focused on, on helping people do that is, is through sexuality. Right. And that's, well, uh, I don't know if that is completely accurate. I would say it has been more through the work of helping men step into their masculinity, their dominance, and kind of emphasizing masculine virtues to men and emphasizing feminine virtues to women Hmm. and saying, stay in your court. Biology is not negotiable as we believe so popularly these days. And Work with your biology, work with your inherent nature, work with the way nature has designed you. And there is more power that way. You're working with nature instead of against it, right? This used to be one level of very common wisdom, like respect nature, respect the structure of nature, right? We kind of used to know this till yesterday. It's very funny. The people who object to my work are exactly the same kind of people who would like object to, you know, uh, genetic interference in creating plants and crops. Just like, oh, respect nature. Except when it comes to men and women, there's no respecting of nature because apparently we don't have natures. Yeah. Right? You respect nature in plants. You don't respect natures in men and women in the homo sapiens species. To me, which is pretty fucking bizarre and ridiculous. We are different. We have certain strengths. So let's respect our nature and let's strengthen those. Like let's let's take our natural strengths and emphasize those and grow those, and that way when we come together we are powerful together because we have kind of matured and nurtured our strengths, our inherent natures. So so what do you see as the the end game? Like helping people have sort of deeper relationships that are more I don't know more fruitful, more rewarding. Like what? I mean, I'm asking because because in your book you but, talk about ecstasy, about love, yeah. About what sounds to me like a form of enlightenment, basically, you know, and 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 using these kinds of energies to get us to sort of the best that life has to offer, you know. And it, the the best model I can offer, and which I often do in my classes, is the equivalent of uh, imagine a ballroom dancing, okay, partnered dancing, right? There's a single dance. It could be tango. It could be foxtrot. It could be uh, waltz it's a partner dance you're doing one dance but your your steps are not identical your steps are complementary so i believe when men and women function well together and they're agreed on what the dance is and they learn their corresponding steps and they're in agreement about their steps they can function at a very high level right now which steps they choose to practice which steps they choose to come into agreement with I don't think God has given us any 10 commandments exactly on how exactly men and women should be. It's kind of for us to figure out by trial and experiment. And I have done my trial and experiment and I have one template to offer, which is the men embodying their dominance, the women embodying their submission. This is one dance I know that when done well, when done in agreement, when done with their own joy, it can work very beautifully. It can be highly functional. It can be functional at the level of a relationship. It can be functional at the level of a marriage. 
It can be functional even in the raising of a family and it can really function in the erotic realm, right? Step into your dominance, sexual dominance, step into your sexual submission. And when those two people come together, they can really have a lot of heat and a lot of fun together because they fit. The dance fits, they're complementary. They're complementary to each other and they can create something vibrant that works for both of them, that allows both of them to go deeper into self-expression that is in harmony with both of their systems, right? A man, you know, if you take a tango, a man who, who is skilled at leading in tango and enjoys leading in tango and a woman who is skilled at following in tango and enjoys being, being taking the, the, that step, when they come together, they can dance well together. Simple as that, right? The model of it is not complex, except we have lost that simple wisdom in man-woman relating because we have thrown everything out the door. We have taken the men's steps and saying there are no steps. We have taken the women's steps and we said there are no steps. And we are saying the man-woman dance, there is no dance. And like, yeah, no shit, everybody is miserable. No shit, nothing is working. No shit, the divorce rate is at 65%. Women are filing for 80% of the divorces. Relationships are in shambles. Everybody is unhappy. The sex is not working. Because no. nobody's agreed on what the dance is. Everybody's stepping on each other's toes and everybody's miserable. And yet everybody's hanging on with their dear life to the ideology that there are no rules. I'm like, how's that working out for everybody? Right. While underneath the surface, the desires are real. The desires are very real. Women's desires for sexual submission isn't going anywhere. Their novels are filled with it. Their fantasies are filled with it. Right. So it's like, well, all that is brimming under the surface, except now you're just creating a shadow layer saying, well, this is just some kind of a, they're not saying a yes to it. A lot of them are in shadow about it. And I think it's just creating confusion. It's creating unnecessary headache. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the other side of that is there's a lot of men who, who don't know how to lead. A lot of and, men don't know how to lead. So yeah, I'm absolutely yeah. not saying that men are perfect dancers and the women are missing. No, it, it's a shamble. It's, it's a complete disaster on both sides. Yeah. It's a complete disaster on both sides. Yeah. And uh, it's a problem. And, and the good news is that once you bring them into this harmony, they can, they can step into that dance very quickly and function very quickly, which I see happening all the time. So what I what find this even like? more, huh? What, what does that look like? I mean, when, when people are, it looks like men taking my creating the dominant man course, women taking my being the masterfully submissive women. And both of them saying, yep, this is the position I want to play. This feels good to me. This feels in harmony with my nature. I feel more at home here, which is an expression that comes up very often. When people do my work, it comes up even more for women than men. But there is almost like, imagine, you know, uh, there are two compasses and they both have been confused by external forces. They both have been spinning around, spinning around, spinning around, spinning around. And men come into my courses and I say, try this model of masculinity. And all of a sudden their needle kind of settles down and they're like, oh, this feels right. I kind of knew this all along. It's not like I'm completely imposing something on them. My desire always has been to discover, not to invent. And I'm like, I think this is how we are supposed to be as men. And women also, I think women have a lot more resistance. Women have a lot more cultural pressure not to explore submission. 
that those brave, so brave souls who find their way into my classes, right? Even when they try these ideas and when they try some of the rituals and practices and they make room for deeply stepping into their femininity, right? It's like their entire system also sighs and says, and they're so often they will use the term. It's like coming home, yeah. right? It's like coming home. Coming home to what? What are they coming home to? Because they've never lived this before. But I do believe we are different and believe there is an internal template. There is an internal place where that compass needle wanted to be because it has a true north. And when they settle into it, they're like, this actually feels right. I sigh here. I relax here. My cortisol levels are dropping. I feel at home here. I want to live here. And I'm saying that's the proof in the pudding. If that isn't happening to you when you do my work, then this journey is not for you. My template is not for you. If it's creating more confusion for you, then please go find your own, right? But I've been doing this for a little while and I feel pretty good and confident that whatever template I'm offering, it's not nothing, it's nothing perfect. It's not 10 commandments from God coming down saying this is the way to be. This is my experiment on what I've tried and what has worked for me, right? It may be an approximation, but I feel I'm approaching a good approximation. That if men and women step into this, not only do they feel more at home within their own systems, but they can really play and engage well with each other. And it's an ongoing journey and it's very complex and it's never going to be perfect. But still, I think there is room for better. There is room for being more harmonious yeah. than where we have been so far. Yeah. So when you say that word submission or submissive, there's something inside me in my gut that's just like resist that, you know? And, it is resistance. And, so, yeah, go ahead. And I, I guess I'm just... So I've been talking about this with my partner because, I mean, I, I came across you, I don't know, six months ago, been listening to interviews, read your book, and just been, you've just kind of been in my space uh, for, for a while now. And I've been speaking with my partner quite a bit about it. And the part that appeals to her is, she's like, yeah, I can see that, that I'd feel safe, you know, and and, yeah. and the the dynamic I've, I've heard you describe was, um, you know, the dominant person tying someone up ornately in, in, in all kinds of knots for, you know, who knows how long, and then just giving them like a kiss on the cheek, you know? And so, so what I see there in that dynamic is someone allowing themselves to be completely vulnerable, completely just open, and then they're treated with care and, and the thing happens. And yeah, that, that, you know, and that, that gives a, a sense of, of safety and of peace, you know, that, that I think, I mean, my partner for one definitely resonates with, and I, and I think yeah. a, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, are, are looking for that. They don't know where to find it. And it, and it yeah. seems to me like, yeah, I can definitely see the magic in that or like, I can, I can surrender myself to this other person and trust that they're going to treat me with, with kindness and care. Right. So I think the, the biggest places where people get hung up, which is almost at a meta level, at the top level of this conversation, is like they think, here's, here's, here's a, a template for submission that has come up from some, some abstract authority. And here's a template for dominance that has come from some abstract authority. And I just have to absorb all of this. And I just have to get with the program. Yeah. I have to get with the submission program. There is no submission program. The entire thing is designed with the focus on these two people coming together and being functional together. 
the whole point is to make this work for two people. If something is not working for one of them, we adjust so that it works for two people. Scenario you described, it works for two people. If you enjoy being the Dom, if you enjoy holding space, if you enjoy taking your woman on a ride, then you need to do what you need to do to make it pleasurable for her. Your template of dominance is built on that parameter so that this can be functional. You understand? Even in ballroom dancing, it is not like the men's steps are arbitrary. That he decides, these are my steps. Now, women, get in line with my steps. No. Ballroom dancing will tell you the bulk of the work the man does is to make the woman look good. Yeah. That's his job. To make the feminine flourish and look spectacular on the floor. So he picks his steps in accordance with that parameter. You understand? It needs to work for the two people. Yeah. So if we teach the men, if we teach the doms, hold a really solid space, hold a big space, hold a big safe container, why? Because that's what makes it work for the submissive. This is a co-conspiracy. The good dom is the dom that can give the submissive a great ride. There isn't any arbitrary structure. And a good submissive is one who makes the dom feel nourished and cherished, makes him feel this is a submissive worth putting my attention and mastery on. I feel good pouring my energy into the submissive. And they want to keep doing this dance over and over again together because they enjoy it. Because the last time was so good. I can't wait for the next one. There isn't any arbitrariness. The whole thing is designed around functionality. And it's it's a dance of communication, right? I mean, maybe some, sometimes verbal communication, but also a sort of intuitive understanding and, and connection with the other person, right? It's very much about, uh, even before it gets to communication, it is about being honest about your desires, right? So it is, in fact, this is, again, where it becomes kind of a spiritual practice, where it becomes almost a psychological practice. If you're dishonest about your desires, what the hell are you going to ask for and create anyway? You need to know who you are. You need to know what your true desires are. You do need to take responsibility for them. And then, yes, you do need to communicate it in extreme detail. And th then you need to have communication about However, you tried to get those desires fulfilled, did it work? How successful were we at, at satisfying our desires together? And that is true in the bedroom. That's true in the relationship. That is true in all aspects of relating. And that model isn't anything uh, uh, specific to the my teaching. Any, any marriage counselor therapy would approach it from that model. Like, are you two people? Do you feel you're getting your needs met? Do you feel seen by your partner, right? Do you feel you can communicate with your partner? Do you feel you can express yourself around your partner? Are you a good partnership, right? In your, in your hierarchy of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, are you meeting each other's needs? Are you meeting each other's security needs? Are you meeting each other's love needs? To me, the logic is the same. Only here, we are actually uh, coming in with our true needs instead of bringing in some kind of 
arbitrary model of masculinity and femininity. Yeah, right? and, the, and the stakes are so much higher. I think that's that's the thing that really draws me in here is that it's, I mean, just before I started reading and, and sort of investigating this, I, I had basically no no experience. I still have no, no practical experience with, yeah. with DS. Um, but just from the outside, it seemed like this just kind of impulsive, like almost kind of careless, just like I'm going to do what I want and some other person gets off on it. No, that's you know, obviously that's, nonsense. If anybody yeah, does that, they're playing badly. And if you do that, no one's ever going to come back and play with you. Yeah, exactly. And that's Simple that's what that. seems so... Yeah, nobody's beholden to anyone. If somebody has a bad date with you, they're not coming back. Yeah, yeah. Right? If so, if you dance with somebody and you step on, on their toes the whole way and, and you have bad breath and you stink, they're not going to dance with you again. Yeah. Right? There, there, there is no obligation here. There is no compulsion here. That is the foundation of consent. You're only doing this out of self-interest. You're only doing this because you're getting off on it. You're only doing this... You're only coming back because the last time was so good and you want more of it. There is no yeah. other standard. There is no other force keeping people together. Yeah. There's no other force I am advocating that people use to come together. The only reason you should do this is out of self-interest. So again, which means make it work. Make this functional. Be a good lover. Be a good partner so that this dance works over and over over the long haul. That's kind of my desire and ambition. How do you make this work today, tomorrow, day after, over the long haul? Yeah, so I, I guess I mean it's maybe paradoxical because I'm a male, um, but I can I can really see the appeal of the the sub position uh, in terms of I mean what I described about safety and and vulnerability and and I see that in a lot of my work with, with psychedelics, for example, or with heat or with cold and you know the whole there's there's all sort of neurology there of like shutting down your default mode network, just surrendering and just like connecting with. Um, almost like a, a deeper part of yourself that doesn't have to do with your, your conscious mind. So there's a part of me that really sort of intuitively understands the appeal of the, the sub position. And I, I find myself at the, sort of struggling to understand what is it that the Dom gets out of this? Like what, what's in it for the Dom? How is that going to get them to, to work through their, uh, I don't know. Um, through their psychology work spiritually, like what, what's in it beyond just giving the woman what she wants or giving this up what she wants? Uh, I think the, I don't know, the best answer to that is hard to do it in words. It's better if you, you're specifically asking in the BDSM context and the DS yeah. context. And I would say more than anything else, it is about self-expression. You do it because there is a part of you that is a Dom. There is a part of you that wants that expression. You might as well ask, uh, why bother going to violin school for years and practicing till your fingers bleed and doing putting your 10,000 hours only to stand and stand on a stage and please other people? That's what your question sounds like to me. What's in it for the Dom? What's in it for the musician? Why work this hard just to please other people? That's what he's ultimately doing, right? Musicians play for other people. Hmm. Why do it? Why bother? What's in it for the musician? It's a ridiculous question. It's an absurd question because there is deep mastery in the music. There is beauty in the music. There is your mastery and your arc. It opens up a portal into your soul. If you're drawn to music, if you're drawn to being a musician, 
there are many things you get out of it. And then there is a connection with your audience. There is a pleasing of the other. And hopefully there is also reciprocity from the audience back to the musician, whether that's simply in the form of money, they pay you money and give you a livelihood because you're talented enough to warrant it. But there's an exchange of some sort, whether it's their applause, whether it's their appreciation, right? There is a cycle, but at the core of it, it is because there is tremendous richness and expression possible for you. You can say that for any aspect of mastery. You can say that for why does a surgeon bother training for practically 30 years of their life, being in school, working their ass off just to save strangers? What's in it for them? It's their entire life. It's their entire expression. It's their entire mission in life to be in that mastery. So being a dom may not be as big as a life calling, but it is a very big aspect of your psyche. It's a very big aspect of your personality. It's a very big aspect of your eros that you get to express and live out. There's a lot of mastery in it. And that's not to be underestimated. It feels like a calling. It feels like you are tapping into a part of you that wants to live, that wants to express itself, that has deep wisdom in it. And it helps you connect in a very deep, sweet, erotic way with your partner. And that's not nothing, right? You might as well ask, why go to school to be a better lover? Just to please your lover. Well, I don't know, because you want to be a good lover? Because that is valuable to you? Right? Yeah. And you won't feel that viscerally till you are occupying that position until you are growing your mastery in being a dom, you won't understand it. Uh, uh, just, you would be as puzzled as seeing a musician slaving away day after day after day after day, being miserable and struggling. And like, why is that person doing that to themselves? Just so they can stand, uh, play for other people and please other people. What's wrong with this person? Yeah, I mean, I, I do sometimes ask myself that. <laughs> it does seem like a fair question to me. It, yeah, it might be, and it, it may be a fair question, but. I think if we did not engage in our passions and things that we feel are within us that want to come out, that need that level of commitment and dedication and focus for their expression and for their growth, we are literally growing parts of ourselves, right? A musician is growing a part of himself or herself through all the practice and the dedication. There's a part of your archetype, there's a part of your being that is growing and flourishing. And over those 20 years, of the acquisition of mastery. Yeah. So I think the journey is very parallel and that's true for any, any category of mastery. There's a part of you that wants that. There's a part of you that gets to live in that. There's a part of you that gets expressed in that. Yeah. 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 That's uh, that makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's a different, a different this way is, of This is not, of... yeah, this is not perhaps an approach we bring to our sensuality. We don't often bring the concept of mastery into relationships or into sensuality, but we should because they are skills, because they are areas of mastery, right? If somebody is better at it than somebody else, either they're naturally gifted or they have worked at it, right? And natural gifts are, they are what they are. They're kind of neutral. More more, the bulk of the conversation is about like, what have you done to develop the mastery? 
right? How did you get this good? Right, and being better at something, certainly being a better at being a lover is no small deal. We all want to please our partners. And if there is a mastery available in how to acquire that, why wouldn't you want to? It raises your value in a genuine way, right? If you're a better partner, if you're a better lover. So, so being able to please your submissive is not nothing. It's a huge thing, right? Because you will have submissives lined up to be handled by you. That's not nothing for a man. We all want that, don't we? Yeah, you want to be you want to be such a good lover. Not only does is this girl on cloud nine after being with you, she sends you all her girlfriends. Isn't that your real fantasy? You're that good in bed. Doms can have that. So I don't know. I mean that 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 yeah. That, I mean that brings up a, another sort of question I wanted to to get into with you, which is the non monogamy. You know, because for for me, just where where I'm at in I mean my my relationship with with sexuality is, is mainly i'm coming through a sort of tantra lens right yeah. and i personally find a lot of value in being sort of more provider more sort of active i wouldn't call it dom but but sort of head, heading in that direction but i also get a lot of pleasure in sort of flipping that around and 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 receiving as well and being more in, in, in sort of a sub position. Yeah. Um, and for, for me, I understand sexual practice as, as a spiritual practice. I mean, it's, it's a way for me to connect with, uh, I, well, I'm, I'm agnostic if it's something deeper within myself or something sort of higher or greater than myself, but it's, it's definitely more profound than my day-to-day -day reality, connecting with another, another person, another person's energy, connecting with my own energy. And it, it in that conception and in, in my experience, the idea of having people sort of lined up, you know, or, or just uh, experiencing sexual intimacy with, with multiple partners to me, I have mixed feelings about it. Like I, there is a part of me that would like that. And it's like, well, that's great. Why not? You know, but, but it's also seems in some way to be sort of degrading or almost threatening the vulnerability that, I'm able to share with my partner when we both know it's just us. You okay. Know? And I, I mean, I, I, I say that because I know you have a, a very different perspective and I don't actually, I, I'm not okay. an advocate for uh, having multiple partners or anything, but I would tell you this, it would be, you would still be better off being the kind of man who has options. Yeah. And then you get to choose the one partner among your options that fits the best with you then rather than be a man that no woman wants to be with yeah okay. so i'm not actually okay. advocating you have multiple partners but i'm saying you should have skills and if you have skills you will have choices and then pick the best one for yourself yeah yeah huh. i, don't I guess I, I completely misread you then i thought i thought you were uh sort when of... have you said when have you heard me say men should have multiple partners I don't have a quote in front of me. I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't subscribe to it. If if you did, you must have uh, misplaced my ideas. I would say men. I would say the more qualified you are, the more options you will have, yeah. and that's a good thing. A man without options is not attractive. Yeah. The more options you have, the more 
qualified the women you will attract because women are attracted to men that other women are attracted to. Women are attracted to men who have options. So by all means, uh, be as dedicatedly monogamous as you want, but that's not the same thing as being a man that many women are attracted to. So, so when people do the workshops with you, um, you know, with, uh, with, with their partner or, I mean, can people come without a partner and they sort of break up into to, to couples there? And in the workshop, we, in the workshop, we just have to make things work for the duration of the workshop. So it's not kind of any kind of an advocacy for any kind of a relationship. Yeah. So if couples come and they want to stay with each other, that's totally fine with me. If they want to split up, work with other people, that's fine with me. And the, the exercises in our classes don't get overtly sexual anyway. They're pretty, they might be PG-13 rated, but they're not NC-17. We don't really encourage people to get totally sexually intimate or anything. Oh. Right. So that's more, more a function of how to make this workshop work for people. Sometimes it's better for couples to split up because then they don't have to deal with all the baggage they've come in with. Otherwise, it ends up being couples therapy, which is pretty tiring because then we are dealing with all the problems they have brought into the course rather than the material of the course. So that is neither here nor there as far as monogamy or non-monogamy in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about heartbreak. In in your book, you've got some some really nice quotes. Um, if you don't mind, I just just yep. read you one. To be led on the path from heartbreak to heartbreak is an essential aspect of our human trek. It's how our soul grows. And genuine suffering of the heart changes our soul. It shapes our inner container. Uh, I mean, you've you've been in a, a relationship for a long time. Long time, thirty one years. Yeah, yeah. So, how does heartbreak fit into that? Oh, all the breakdowns are heartbreak. All the times you've almost broken up, all the times you've been deeply disappointed, all the times you felt, how can you possibly treat me like this? All the disappointments, all the breakdowns, all the fuck-ups, all the times where you're like, what the fuck am I even doing here? All of it counts as heartbreak. Yeah. Every breakdown, every fight, every time somebody did something that the next day said, I couldn't believe, I can't believe what I did yesterday. All of those behaviors, all of those nightmares, all the time you went to hell and back. Yeah. All of that is heartbreak. It doesn't have to be just a breakup like in the movies where lovers part. The worst of heartbreak happens inside of relationships. Yeah. All of it. All the negativity. Yeah. And it, yeah, and it's uh, and in my my definition of heartbreak does not is not really restricted to romantic heartbreak. Loss, grief, death in the family, death of a pet. Right? All of it. Any 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 uh, event of betrayal that happens in your life with a friend? Oh my God! Are you kidding? Feeling betrayed by a friend will kill you. Some man you thought was your brother and you had an experience of betrayal with him. Worse than any woman. Fucking around on you. Feeling betrayed by a friend. Right. Cuts deep. So all of those experiences go into our heart. They're experiences of grief, of loss, of heartbreak, of the loss of the ideal of the love we held for somebody, the expectations we held for somebody, all of it. 
and you can feel it. The heart, the heart uh, pain is the easiest to feel because it's literal. <laughs> For some reason, yeah. right? We feel the heartbreak. It's so physical. It like fucking physically hurts. Yeah. You can even locate it. The, the people who are experts in chakra system, they locate heartbreak, the pain of the heart at the back of the heart. And you can almost feel it sometimes too. You can feel it at the back of the heart, like a mm -hmm. knife in the back of the heart, right? Those are the events that are that, that most prompt us to contract, right? To try and turn completely cold and psychopathic and say, fuck it, I'm not going to feel anything. I'm just going to do what I can and I'm not going to feel anything and those are like invitations to shut the heart. And even that is necessary for small periods of time, simply as a survival or coping mechanism. But I think if we stay in that contraction for a long time, we, we, we kind of stunt our journey and we make our life duller. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. my experience of it. So shutting down and escaping heartache is really not the way. Are choosing not to love again and are choosing not to open up again is not the way it's not the braver choice it's an understandable choice because heartbreak hurts like hell right it'll literally make you curl up into a fetal position in bed and not want to get out again yeah that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense and i yeah. mean it's so i mean like like almost everything you say it's it goes against the grain of what popular culture is telling us we should be doing and what will make us happy and what's worthwhile doing. Um, I don't but know it, which popular culture is telling you to avoid heartbreak? Uh, All your songs are filled with it. Half the movies are filled. Yeah, but I don't think, I haven't heard anyone say it's a, it's a good thing. Like you should look for it. Like well, it's unavoidable. It. I'm not saying go chase it. I'm not really saying go chase drama. I'm saying actually chase functionality. I'm saying chase relationships that work, that don't end in betrayal and heartbreak. And yeah. along the way, it will happen anyway. Yeah, so but, and, saying, but embrace it and and use it. To, embrace it to because grow. there is no choice. There is there is no life without loss. Live long enough, people will die on you. Live long enough, relationships will fall apart. Live long enough, you will have experiences of betrayal. There is no walking around it. So then the only question becomes like, well, what's your plan when this happens? Right? Not love anybody. Not have any friends. Not have any pets. Not have any family members. Make sure nobody ever dies on you. Right, that's not workable. That's not feasible. That's not a very rich life. Right, if you if if a pet dies, it is excruciating. You can resolve never gonna have a pet again. Eh, okay. Right, grief is grief. Anybody who's lost a pet, they know how how much it hurts. It hurts the same as losing a family member. Probably doesn't last as long, but grief is grief. The next morning you wake up and the pain is excruciating. Yeah, exactly the same pain. Right. Yeah. And how, how would you, so, I mean, I hear you talking about like on your path, on your journey, on your trek, the sense of, of moving or developing towards something, right? Do, do you have a vision of what that something is? Like, are, is this about enlightenment? Is this, what is this about? It's just, you know, I do very much. Uh, it's not like I believe, subscribe to the chakra system because I just believe in it. It just makes sense to me. I do believe that there is a human journey. I do believe it's almost like you can consider it a very complex video game. Maybe we actually are uh, avatars in the video game of a very super intelligent being someplace. But it's like our chakra system is a very good map. That are you can, if you don't subscribe to the chakra system, subscribe to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They're amazingly parallel. I mean, even he has seven tiers. That we have these 
centers, we have these needs, we have these capacities, and there is trauma possible at every capacity, there's loss possible at every capacity, you can get lost in any, any one of those needs, any one of those needs can be not met and create pain. And the game of life is how to negotiate this whole thing, right? How to negotiate your wounding, your around abandonment, around your survival needs, your survival fears, your aggression around your sex, around your esteem, around your heart, going further up to your expression, to your voice in the world, to what you're going to contribute to other, to your to your to the possibility of celebration you're cultivating in your being going further up into the spiritual realm and do how aware you are, how present you are, or how much you're operating on autopilot, how much do you feel connected to the divine, how much do you feel connected with some sense of awe and purpose in life. It's right there on the chart. Pick your chart. Pick the chakra system or pick Maslow's list or something else parallel. These things are inherent in our structure. They are inherent in our architecture. And each center works better or worse gets clogged up or unclogged, right? At different times in our lives, at different events in our life. And I believe this is the game of life, right? And at least from this end of it, I can see the game and I can see, I can try and play it the best I can. And at least from those who claim to know better, they say there is a transcendent point. This game actually ends. I'm, I'm not 100% sure there is something. I have a sense of it. But while you're in this game, while you're on this side, keep playing, keep playing to the best of your ability. Yeah. And all the game is in here. It, it's not really abstract or out there. It's really about how we live our life, what decisions we make, what choices we make, which turns we take, where, where we put the weight of our will, right? Whatever, whatever little weight our will has, what choices do we make? Heartache came, now what? Got traumatized in childhood, now what? Had an alcoholic father, now what? Right, got my esteem best in, now what? Had an experience of betrayal, now what? I realize I'm so full of my thoughts, I need anxiety medication just to get out of bed. Okay, now what? Deal with the crisis as they show up and just keep playing and go forward, right? And it seems the game is so complex that if you believe that we live multiple lifetimes. It is, it is actually designed to be played over multiple lifetimes. It's that complicated. You're never going to crack it in one run. So really keep playing because we can't look beyond the veil and we don't know all the pieces. It's fun. On a good day, it's really fun. When you have your moments of epiphany, it's fun. If you have done medicine journeys or whenever you have had a moment where you feel you've kind of peeked behind the veil, at least my sense of it is like, this is so tremendously elegant, right? I often get that feeling on medicine journeys. Like I did a little, little Buddha smile comes to my face. I'm like, this is a tremendous game because it is so sophisticated, it is so structured. It, it, it is not chaotic. It has a progression, it has a means. So whoever designed it, it, it is a pretty magnificent game. The human system is a pretty magnificent system to play through all these levels, to face all these challenges. So keep playing the best we can do, right? Deal with the piece that's in front of you. I, well, this is a very odd piece of advice I got long time from a book. Uh, it was from a person who, who claimed to have kind of 
had a peek into the karmic structure of our multiple lifetimes. He said, adopt a grazing principle. And what is a grazing principle? It says, you ever seen cows graze, any, any kind of a grazing animal? It just, it works by its nose. It's not actually very sophisticated, mm. right? A, a deer or a cow doesn't stand up in a field and say, I think three miles down there is some really good shit. Let's walk three miles and you take this side and then we will get the food over there. They're not that smart. Yeah, they put their nose down and this is a good piece here. Oh, this is a good piece here. And they just graze by their nose. And they said the grazing principle is trust life. Trust what has shown up in front of your face today. Today, you have shown up in front of my face. Right? You reached out to me months ago. We couldn't connect. I was traveling, COVID, blah, blah, blah. Two days ago, we connected and here we are today. Trust that to some degree. Trust the grazing principles. Today, we are supposed to have this conversation and deal with life as it shows up. And there is some peace and wisdom in that. Trust the greater wisdom. I found it kind of useful to kind of, you know, adopt that to some degree. And maybe just follow that through instead of sitting up and being the great philosopher saying, I'm going to sit down and crack life today. But maybe that's what you're supposed to do on that particular day too. So all, all of it is okay. Yeah. Hard to ex escape it really. How, how does your, your role as a teacher play into your journey on this path? I think, again, it is an area of uh, expression and mastery that showed up. It, it kind of very much showed up according to, according to the grazing principle. I, it was one of those cases of being a student, being curious about certain things, wanting to have information for myself, and then finding myself at a stage where I had acquired enough information that I was beginning to be useful to other people. Right. So it was like the students simply acquiring enough information and then newbies start coming and you're like, hey, no, no, do it this way here. I've done this already. Yeah. So it wasn't about sitting together and deciding I'm going to be a teacher. It's like, oh, I have information other people can use. Yeah. And seeing that part simply grow, saying, oh, I can actually be good at this. Oh, I can actually be of use here. It was very much kind of on that cycle. Like, oh, actually, I am actually saying things that people are finding useful enough that they want to pay me for it. Okay. Right. I didn't like sit down and say, I'm going to be a teacher. Not in that case. I may have done that for other things. Like, you know, I was a photographer in a previous lifetime for that. I like, oh, I like this. I'm going to go to a school for this. I'm going to study it. I'm going to seek out other teachers, mentors. It was a more, a little bit more of a plan to get better at it. Teaching very much was literally like, drawing the water to drink and oh here's some extra you want some oh i can show you how to get water out of this well i've been doing this for a while it was a little bit like that still feels like that still feels like i'm basically offering to other people what i feel has worked for me it actually keeps things simple and in that process of offering it to other people are you getting more out of it as well always yeah always it's a it's a i think it's an old saying that you don't really know something till you have to teach it to somebody else I think it's very much the case. And there is an aspect of inspiration that works that is beyond me. I think that part of inspiration I discovered even uh, as, uh, as soon as I discovered the artist archetype in me, when I started doing photography and then later on when I started uh, writing more deliberately, you discover that this entire process is not under my control, that there is such a thing as inspiration, there is such a thing as something else that comes through, right? Whether in the woo-woo terms you call that channeling, all of it is not 
your own. Everything I write is not mine. Everything of use that I say is not my brilliance. It just kind of flows and you, I kind of make peace with it. That's part of it is me, part of it is my ability, part of it is skills I have developed. And the rest of it is, is not quite mine. I'm not actually that smart or that wise. Something is coming through and while it's coming through, might as well make use of it and give it to other people. And maybe one day it'll stop. I really don't know. It's not completely under my control any more than uh, a writer can say tomorrow, I'm going to write a great chapter that the world will remember for a good luck. You don't, you don't know when those days are going to happen. You do your best. You sit your ass down in chair and you do today what you did yesterday. And maybe today something brilliant comes through. So there is always a X factor, not, not proud enough to say it's all me that's out there. Are, are you a father? I'm not. I don't have any kids. No. I don't have okay. any kids. No. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, I found that one of the quotes that made me think you were advocating uh, non-monogamy. Uh, quote, our sex life is a lazy and half-assed idea. And it's, it's an excuse to show up sexually unprepared and sexually unqualified to your lover. Uh, the sum ends up being smaller than the individuals in the equation. Right? And yeah. there's this, this part of your book where where you were, it seemed to me that you were advocating sort of opening up the relationship, experimenting and coming back and showing up stronger for, for your lover. Even here, um, so again, uh, what you're saying is halfway true. You are interpreting that as open up your relationship and have multiple lovers. I'm, I am more for sexual mastery. I'm more for sexual education, right? And sexual education is very hard to have in a closed room with nobody else in it, right? Uh, if you go learn French cooking, you don't think you're cheating on your wife or your wife doesn't think she's cheating on you because she cooked with some other person, right? So there is a, there is a point of to acquire greater knowledge, to practice, we do need community. We do need other people. We need teachers. We need mentors. We need other people who are taking the same journey we are. We need to communicate. We need to share knowledge, right? And there's no way of doing that except in sharing information in, in working together. Now, how much you work together is entirely up to you. I have never taken any classes that involved me having oral sex or intercourse with any partners. But being at one taste, being learning stroking, I stroked hundreds of women. I touched hundreds of women in BDSM play. I've handled hundreds of women. And that's how you get better. That's how you build your practice. So if you're saying you count all of that as non-monogamy, then I'm like, I don't know how else to get better at it. I don't know how to practice. I don't know what analogy you want to use. Like only learn to get better at your tango by dancing only with your partner. I'm like, that's a handicap. That's a handicap. You should actually dance with other people. You will get better at it. Your partner should dance with other people. They will get better at it. And then come dance together with each other and be whatever in partnership with each other. So there is that element of how do you get sex education without ever opening up this container in anywhere? So my emphasis is not in non-monogamy. My emphasis is in getting sexual mastery and getting training and getting education. That's within a container where, you know, a clearly defined situation, everyone's there for, for learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, that's what, this is what I have. I have a school. I have a school for teaching people dominance. I have a school for teaching people submission. I have a school for teaching people BDSM. 
And I have school for teaching people sensual touch and cock stroking and pussy stroking. Right? You want to only come practice with your partner? I have absolutely no agenda on it. And yet, will, will, can I make a blanket statement that you will get better if you stroke multiple people with your hands? Yeah, you will. Probably you will. But it, is it essential or necessary? Everything I'm advocating? No, I'm observing that. It's simply an observation. Right? If you massage hundred different bodies, you will learn how to handle hundred different bodies that are coming in with their own configuration and needs and sizes and knots and troubles. And that'll be a greater mastery than if you do hundred massages on exactly the same body day after day. This is not, this is not any kind of a sexual ideology or advocacy. It's like, how do we get better? How do we acquire mastery? Yeah. Right. And th that model applies to every field. If you're a musician and you play with different musicians, you'll get better. If you play with the same guy every time, you're going to be limited in your range. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's really that logic and that observation. It has nothing to do with my ideologies on monogamy and non-monogamy. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you, do you practice, I mean, you mentioned uh, plant medicine. Do you practice other sort of, I don't know, complementary sort of, I don't know what to call them, tools or, or paths even to sort of get you up that the chakra system or the Maslow's hierarchy or whatever you well, want to call it. Well, the earliest one I think was uh, simply meditation. Okay. Awareness meditation. I did transcendental meditation a while ago. I found it quite beautiful. Awareness meditation is a beautiful practice. I've done a lot of tantra work. So playing with breath and sound to move my energy with or without sexual stimulation is a very powerful practice. I did that for years what they would refer to as white Tantra, bringing that in with a lover, doing red Tantra, all of that I found very beautiful and very helpful and really embodying, bringing, bringing, me, bringing my presence into my body, into my system, making me more aware of what's happening with my energies at any moment, bringing greater awareness into sensation, being able to stay in sensation. The stroking practice was a tremendous meditation practice to stay present with sensation. Right. The BDSM practice to me has been a deeply spiritual practice because once again, it is at its core, it's about attention. It is about putting your attention on your submissive, keeping your attention there, reading their system in the moment and responding to it. It's very much a moment-to-moment -moment live dance of energies and perceptions. There's no way to do it without being present completely with your partner right here, right now. That to me is a practice of awareness. It's a practice of meditation. It's a practice of uh, not only feeling the energies, but masterfully playing with the energies, raising them, lowering them, expanding them, right? Accessing our, our deeper terrains through them, accessing the darkness and the taboo that's hidden within us through those energies and, and making room for those. So I think as long as you're in a practice of awareness and using your awareness and attention, essentially you're in a spiritual practice in my book. Right, And every school basically advocates that. If anything, medicine journeys are a bit more passive. Medicine journeys are a bit more like I'm really handing myself over to greater forces and they will show me what they show me. Right, Medicine journeys are actually, here's the thing, medicine journeys can have a shadow. Awareness meditation cannot. I have seen people uh, waste their medicine journeys. I've seen people, they even say at some point, the grandmother kicked me out. They're like, get the fuck out of here. You've done too many journeys. 
I have seen people do medicine journeys and actually not use the information they got during their journeys because human beings are such fucking assholes. They can be such assholes that these portals open, they get this information about themselves and they do nothing with it. It's too difficult. Just a few journeys ago, yeah, I had one woman, I don't know whether it was her first journey or what, she was whining during her integration because uh, the journey showed her all the ugly parts of herself. And she's like, I can do this sitting all by myself home thinking bad about myself. I don't need to spend money and spend a whole night just to see what a shit I am. I'm like, sweetie, you're kind of missing the fucking point. This is what the fucking journey is supposed to show you. This is that the medicine worked perfectly, but they're like, are you, if you're looking for a good time, you're, you're in the wrong room. If you're just looking for a high, fucking don't take ayahuasca, go take MDMA or something. Maybe that'll work for you. Right. But people can be such assholes. And in a way they're like, in a way, so that can actually be a shadow piece in the medicine pathway. You're supposed to respond and act upon the information, upon the epiphanies. And that's up to you to follow up, right? But if you do awareness meditation, to me, in a way, it's it's hard to have a shadow piece in it. Hmm. Because there's almost like there is no negative side to awareness. Not really. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's just so much more gradual. opposite to it when you reach the sixth chakra. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... Uh... Preparation is definitely overlooked a lot of times with medicine journeys and people just, they come to it just wanting a magic pill. Basically. Those people are rare, I would, you know, just to be fair, those people are rare, but you do encounter them. Like you shake their head, like, why are you here? And usually whoever the space holder in the room is uh, wonderful enough to kind of gently guide them towards like, no, I think you're supposed to look at this. If not, you're missing the point. So it's not like the whole thing is a disaster. But human beings do come in with those expectations that they think that something else is just going to do the work for them. Yeah. That some practice is just going to work on them instead of them actually using that, you know, as a, as a, as a opening resource. Yeah. I wonder if you could speak about the relationship between the, like, being dominant in a sexual as, as, as a form of sexual relation relating and being dominant in a relationship outside of that so so what i'm thinking is you know uh hypothetically i don't know i, I go to your course uh sort of connect with my dominant male energy um and i you know maybe it works fine in, in the bedroom in like a very specific context but then it's, you know, time to wash the dishes or change the baby's diaper or whatever it is. Like, how how does that play out in concrete terms on, in just like day-to-day -day life? What, what, what does that look like? Um, so in, in the context of a relationship, whether it is inside the bedroom or outside the bedroom, it is always the format of a dance that two people are doing together happily. If you enjoy holding the dominant position and you have a partner who enjoys holding the submissive position, whether it's in the bedroom, outside the bedroom, in your domestic agreements, whatever it is, wherever you want to play that dance that works for both of you, wonderful. If it works for both of you, it's a two-person dance and the only way to make it sustainable is to make it pleasurable and workable for two people. 
right? Again, it, this is based on functionality. It is not based on ideology. If you're not in a relationship, you being a dominant man, maybe at that point, the word dominant is kind of superfluous and unnecessary. You're simply a man who is knows himself, who is competent, who can deal with things and dealing with things, whether that has to do with doing domestic work or anything else, do it. Absolutely. Be, be effective. Know yourself and be effective. And that has got nothing to do particularly with anybody else being submissive to you. You can do that alone in a room. In fact, the bulk of my teaching for men is bulk of your masculinity is not about relating with women. It's not even about relating with men. It's about you being in your mastery. It's about you being in your clarity. It's about you being competent. It's about you being effective in life. It's about you knowing how to wield your energies and your attention. You living a life that feels in harmony to you, that feels good to you, so that you feel you're on a path to mastery, that you feel you're building something in life, that you are the kind of man other women, other men can rely on, other men want to have in their circle. You are the kind of man who has other men's back and they have yours. You know how to operate in a community of men. And you're building your life, you're building your world. And then that kind of man is also attractive to women. So be all of that and that'll make you attractive to women. And then separately, learn how to dance with women. Learn, learn feminine nature. Don't be naive about what feminine nature is. Come to peace with feminine nature. Come to peace with the dark aspect of feminine nature and then play all out. Have fun with it. Create what you want. Try and create what you want and do it in a way that works for both of you. Because that's the only way this is sustainable. All of this is consensual. Nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. So the only way this can work is if it works for both people. Yeah. So so yeah, I guess the the sticking point there for me is like what what are the limits to dominance? Like how do what does consent look like in a dom sub relationship? Right, because it can that, look like whatever two people want to create together. That's the whole point of consent. And I would hope you don't really harm each other physically too much and you're acting in some kind of conscious way towards each other fulfillment and betterment. But you know, I leave the details to consenting adults. What do you want to create? What are you exploring? And people play all kinds of crazy games. And their games may not be your games, but hey, I'm all for experimenting with life. I'm all for two people doing whatever they want to do with each other and there are plenty of shit i see in this realm that i'm like that's fucking crazy i'm never doing that but that doesn't mean i want to stop them from doing it only time i would want to interfere is if i actually feel there isn't consent then i may have a duty as a human being as a samaritan to say i think i see i'm witnessing harm i'm witnessing abuse i'm witnessing something that's out of consent but if i actually see two human beings and usually in this realm in the BDSM realm, more often than not, people operate in a tremendous container of friendship and love. And within that container, they do pretty crazy shit. They're actually not interested in having power over or they're not interested in non-consensual. If they are, stay away from those people. Those are not the people you want as your people or your community. But the teachers I've had, the mentors I've had, the community I've been exposed to, those people tend to be cleaner about their boundaries those people tend to be more open-hearted 
they seem to be more interested and invested in their partner having greater self-expression than anybody else outside. And if they do crazier shit, it's because they, more often than not, it's not because they're trying to get their rocks off, it's because they are trying to create a space where their partner can have the expression that they want. Most of the scenes I have seen that have blown me out in the BDSM realm and community have been of that nature. Where the partners were together and one partner was creating a scene for the other partner because that's the experience they wanted. That's the part of their psyche they wanted to explore. And this partner said, I will help you explore it. Even if I don't do it directly for you, I will create a space for you. I will invite other people in so that this experience that you want to have, you may have. Because I must stand for your expression. I must stand for you having what, whatever you want to explore. And that is an amazingly generous field to hold for each other, right? Yeah. And the best stories I have of seeing that energy has been in the BDSM realm. Yeah. Yeah, people I mean, are crazy. People really do go far out because they are such fanatics about saying, if you're really curious about this, let's explore it. Yeah. Let's see what's hiding there. And they go to some dark spaces which other people would think are absolutely nuts. Like you actually want to go that deeply into humiliation, into objectification. Like, yeah, I do. Like, okay, let's find out. Let's find out what lives there for you. Yeah, in that context, I mean, it, it, Dom is almost seems like a misnomer. You know, it's like the- It's the, not a misnomer once you get it from my end of it. It may be a misnomer the way popular culture understands it. In my school, if you come, the first thing I will tell you, tell you is hold a magnificent permission field for your submissive. That's one of the biggest skills and gifts that Dom brings to a submissive. Hold a clean, big field for your submissive's expression. I will tell that to you in the first 10 minutes of my class. But that is not the definition of a Dom that the people who are against this kind of polarity relating would assume it is. They think it's power over. They would think it's non-consensual, blah, blah, blah. It's not the game you're playing on the inside. It's a very different perception. The political perception from the outside compared to a game of self-expression and mutual holding of each other that is being played on the inside. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing, it's, it's it's deeply caring and it's it is deeply caring yeah. i would say never do this thing with anyone that you don't care about and that you don't want to get closer to because when you do this well intimacy will grow so any idea that this is being done casually or it's being done between people who don't care about each other is nonsense it's stupidity from people who are looking from the outside looking in who have no idea what they're talking about and if there are people on the inside who are acting in that uncaring way, I'm not friends of theirs. It's not what I advocate. It is not what I am a stand for. It is not what I teach in my classes. It is not what my students take away. Ask any of them. Yeah. Well, that, that answers my question about the dishes. <laughs> it's, who cares uh... about the dishes? I mean, my, my bigger... You know, about the dishes like that, my my advice to men is be of use, be effective. Yeah. No, exactly. My general exactly. advice to men is any room you walk into, lighten the load in that room. 
lighten the load in that room. Jordan Peterson said something that gives me goosebumps. You know, he said, he said, he said to men, be useful at your father's funeral. It's not the penultimate definition of a man, but it actually is an insight into masculinity. He said, be useful at your father's funeral. Be effective. It's what men want more than anything else. It's what men want. They want to be able to function in difficult situations. They want to be able to deliver. They want to be able to be reliable. They want to be competent. They want to be effective. Be effective wherever you go. Any room you walk into, create more order in that room than there was chaos. Leave that room better. Be effective. Lighten the load in that room. You're walking into a house that's grieving, do something, contribute. And if that means going over and washing the dishes that are in the sink, do it without needing any acknowledgement for it. Lighten the load around you. That's mastery. That is you left this room a little bit better. Right? That is a great ethic for a man to have. You will feel better about yourself. Right? Don't just clear your plate. Clear all the plates from the table. Create order around you. Function. Create functionality around you. And if many men do that, the world gets better and better and better. And you're headed in the right direction. You're doing something constructive with your energies. Who gives a shit who's actually cleaning the dishes or taking out the garbage? To me, it's not about dominance and submission when it's approaching from that angle. Right, A particular man, woman, a particular couple can decide their domestic duties in a particular way. That's their choice. But if you're really asking, like, should a man never fuck? No. Take care of everything. Change every fucking diaper. Fix every fucking toilet. Take care of the grossest jobs. Men do the grossest jobs anyway in the world. It's part of our strength. We fucking get our roll up our sleeves. We get in there and we get shit done. Shit washes off your hands in no time. Be effective. You will feel more aligned in your masculinity when you do that. Do it for its own sake. Bring order into this world. Push back the chaos in any small way you can, in any way you can contribute to other people. And you will feel better. You will feel in your mastery, even if it's about doing the dishes, unclogging the toilet. Doesn't really matter. Be useful. Be effective. To me, there's a continuum in that particular postulate. Be effective. We want to be effective with the women in the bedroom. We want to be effective in the way our houses are run. We want to be effective in the jobs we have. We want to be effective. So follow that dictate and embody that everywhere you go as much as possible. It isn't about any particular job or being above any particular job. Do the dirtiest jobs. Do the job nobody else wants to do. That'll make you more effective. Why do you think men who do dirty jobs get paid that much money? Plumbers make a great fucking living. They don't mind the shit. Right? Yeah. Good? Well, I think, I don't know. Is there anything you, uh, anything else you want to cover? Anything you think I should have asked you? Well, I would like to promote my course. So if the okay. men are interested in pursuing more work with me, come check out my website, omrupani.org. I've switched the format of my course to an ongoing enrollment. 
So we are talking today on September 5th, starting September 27th. Its course is going to be open. You can sign up at any point. And okay. I've set it up on a subscription model so you can stay in the course in the conversation for different lengths of time, depending on what you want. Okay. And I made a very easy entry point. You can get in the course for one month for only $100 so that you can see if it's the right material for you, if you want to stay in, in it for longer. Otherwise, if I make a heavy... Uh, big price for the investment of the course it keeps a lot of men out keeps them wondering is this worth it for me or not so instead of answering all your questions i'm like you know what invest a hundred dollars come check out the course and you can decide for yourself yeah. and this, this is online it's online course yeah okay okay cool. hopefully after all this uh nonsense settles down i would love to have in-person retreats but even then, the bulk of the course is online. And to me, the in-person retreats will be for people who have done the course so we can go to one level deeper person. Yeah. Right. right. And you still are doing in-person stuff. I mean, you were, you were just in Berlin. I was in Berlin, but even in Berlin and coming back, the restrictions got raised and travel got difficult. So it's not really easy. And still waiting and seeing what's happening with all this. But hopefully it'll settle down. But in the meantime, Zoom has been a great boon to us. I think that we can continue our conversation and continue our work. And for the longer courses, the online format is better anyway. Because in person, what can you do? You can do a weekend, a week at the most. Here, the minimum length of the course was 12 weeks for me. So you can really do bigger journeys online. And people from all over, the, literally all over the world can join in, which is amazing. Yeah. Omerpani.org, so that's where the courses are. I will also be restarting the course for women a couple of months from now. So one course for men to explore their dominance, one course for women to explore their submission, and a separate course actually for the BDSM training. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank My you for pleasure. your time. Thanks okay. for your expertise, your insight. Okay. Good stuff. Yeah. Right. All right. Bye. 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 Thank you.